I don't always think it's appropriate to use data to make decisions. I agree. Like, I think a lot of the times, like, it is um, just an impediment. Trying to wait for the data is sometimes an excuse for not making confident decisions about what you want to do. If you want to execute in a domain, don't wait. Just do it. We are live. We are live. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Thanks, Daliana. Glad to be here. So Brian is a data science manager. He previously worked at Facebook and indeed as senior data scientist and machine learning engineer. Brian specializes in ad system design, ranking, and A-B testing platforms. Brian, very excited to have you on the show and talk about your career journey. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, so I know you didn't study data science in college. Uh, what did you study? So I guess when I was in undergrad, I guess there was not yet any programs in data science per se. But nonetheless, I had I didn't study anything having anything to do with data science mm-hmm. or statistics or mathematics or computer science or really science at all. I was uh, as an undergraduate student, I took my first semester, I took a math class. Um, and I did pretty well. And then my second semester, I thought I could take it easy. Um, and I did very, very poorly <laughs> in my second math class in college. Yeah. And that convinced me basically to kind of like give up and focus on other things. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it convinced me to give up. I, I guess I felt more like there was a lot of other things that I was just interested in. I think I've always been somebody where whatever I'm doing, I managed to get interested in mm-hmm. that thing. Um, and so there was a bunch of things that I felt like I was more interested in than the rigors of mathematics and science and things like that. So I ended up studying history oh. uh, and Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, studied abroad in China. I studied abroad in Siberia. Wow. I had a very different kind of undergraduate experience than a lot of my peers, mm-hmm. especially the peers who were doing degrees in physics or mathematics and things like that. Right. Um, and I really enjoyed my time. It was a great, great experience. And, you know, this, the beginning of my career uh, had nothing to do with data science. Mm-hmm. So, Oh, that's really cool. So when you uh, started to study data science in grad school, how what was it like for your transition? Was it difficult? Um, I Yes, it was extremely difficult. So I guess just to give a little bit more narrative here, um, I moved to China uh, and I lived in China for about four years. Um, and... During that time there, my kind of the thing that I focused on more than anything else was a, as a linguist. I was a translator, um, and uh, well, actually, I kind of went the full journey from being a uh, tour guide on the Great Wall uh, as an intern, wow, uh, and an English teacher part time, uh, another internship at a law firm, and eventually became more and more comfortable in Chinese, and eventually started working uh, as a translator. Um, and then uh, taking advantage of the fact that I, I was competent in the language, um, I began working as a consultant because mm-hmm. I could I was I was somebody who could be on the phone with Chinese businesses and asking about their manufacturing capacity. Yeah, uh, and I took a lot of pride in that. It was like a totally different you know different sphere than I am now. Um, and I had colleagues that would then take this information that I would aggregate, um, and they would basically begin to enter it into Excel. Yeah, uh, and that was like that was probably the first time I had used Excel since like middle school or mm-hmm. something like that. 
Um, and I was, you know, in the process of becoming kind of like the Excel monkey, like, yeah. you know, entering in things, <laughs> running really simple analysis, yep. looking at the, uh, the, I guess the market capacity for, I was at the time I was studying wind power, mm-hmm. um, and my colleague who is sitting right next to me, um, Xu Peng, um, he was our database guy. He like knew how to go. He was like the advanced person. Like mm-hmm. he was basically taking these simple sort of Excel analyses yeah. and going the next level up uh, using Microsoft Access databases. So I took a liking to that sort of stuff and um, became interested in how SQL worked mm-hmm. and how to how to do joins. Mm-hmm. And it was just like mind blown. Like yeah. It was just like a very, very different world for me. Um, and starting about around that time is when I began to feel like um, I wanted to re-educate myself in a technical capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wanted to kind of redirect myself towards science. Yeah. Um, and also I wanted to be able to... Uh, I was thinking about what I would do after I was no longer living abroad because mm-hmm. uh, it was hard for me at the time to imagine living forever in China. Yeah, uh, and I had a lot of people around me that were going back for business school and mm-hmm. law school, um, and I was like, "Well, what career is mine? What what kind of career do I want to have?" Um, I didn't want to be just a business school student. I didn't want to just be a law school student. The lawyers I knew they were very unhappy, mm-hmm. um, and I was fascinated by technology. Yeah, so. Yeah. Wow, very interesting career journey. Um, I feel a lot of people like me uh, started their data science journey because we're in engineer. We study engineering or you know math, but um, I think some at some point in our career journey we all feel lost, like why we're learning all the theories. And I think your journey is particularly interesting because. You didn't really have the pressure of you have to become a data scientist. You just let whatever you were working on um, let you to this career journey, which is very natural. And then you kind of just followed your curiosity, which I think is very beautiful. Yeah, I'd say curiosity plus incentives, mm-hmm. right? Like um, from the perspective of working in a non-technical job, right? Um, I think I always had a degree of admiration and even envy towards mm-hmm. people who seem to be working on things where they had um, engaging, challenging work, mm-hmm. um, a really good work-life balance, and an opportunity to kind of work at the edge of knowledge, yeah. uh, to have had to be doing things that were kind of like at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think I kind of put two and two together, sort yeah. of looking at and I, re- I remember reading a lot of uh, answers on Quora. Mm. Like, what is the lifestyle like for somebody in this profession? What yeah. is the lifestyle like for somebody in that profession? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I began to kind of gravitate towards yeah. uh, technical professions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and now you're a data science manager. So, Quora style question What is it like to be a data science manager? Um, well, it is like adding a lot of paperwork to being a data scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I guess I think of management in general um, as being a, uh, a process of learning how to work with people as being the, uh, how can we say this? The way that you're expressing yourself is no longer through uh, code, it is through processes. Mm. It is through the expression 
of your team and what your team is sort of uh, accomplishing. So um, understanding how to work with people and how to like, in, like understand people. And I, I think leading with a capacity of like human psychology and things like that. Um, it's obviously, it's a really different, it's a different sort of set of skills and a different set of perspectives that I think that are involved in more, more technical work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And being a data science manager today, what are something you learned from the perspective of a manager that you wish you could have known when you were uh, IC, when you were a data scientist? Well, I think maybe something to keep in mind or something I do think of is uh, the data almost never speaks for itself. Um, I think that maybe there's a bit of uh, belief or a faith that like, if people only knew or were exposed to what I was exposed to, they would reach the same conclusions I reach. Right. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think uh, it's really, it really is important to uh, sort of think about communicating your conclusions and communicating your assumptions mm -hmm. extremely early in a process. Yeah. And I, I think that even um, with professional projects of any sort, it is extremely helpful to be upfront and be and communicate your assumptions and your uh, and your limitations in advance. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I think maybe becomes absolutely essential mm -hmm. as a manager. Um, but it's also something that's really helpful for people that are working as technical ICs. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point because um, some challenges I had when I was in my early career was I always want to only want to present my results when I complete that. I want to make sure the charts are pretty and everything. But then at that point, maybe the my manager or the business have already changed their goals or I didn't correctly understand what it want from me uh, but then I went all the way into that right and then I wish I could have showed them results when I'm 25% of it or 50% of it even right. if they don't really care whether your charts are pretty you have a lot of certainty but have this uh, periodical check-in with your manager is very right. important and then um, learn to be comfortable with uh, uh, the uncertainty in the results yeah yeah. I think that's really true. Being comfortable with uncertainty is probably one of the biggest lessons that we can have in life in mm -hmm. general, Yeah. Uh, let alone in, in our careers. I think that's really important. I think especially coming from a technical disciplines, mm -hmm. like there is, uh, you know, we are probably often accused yeah. by our product managers that we work with that we want to wait and wait and wait until things are actually right. perfect to, yeah. to move on. Um, and I think that's a fair criticism because um things are never going to be known all the way. Yeah. And like we have no choice but to know, but to act with uncertainty. Right. Um, and I think that that um, being comfortable with that mm -hmm. and, and recognizing that up front is probably the sign of like, of, of beginning to grow and maturity in one's profession. Yeah. Um, one more kind of thought on that is that um, sort of these check-in points and the need to be sort of flexible and they need mm -hmm. to understand that. Uh, but along with that is understanding that um, the need for that work to be part of a narrative that is mm. being crafted. Right. Um, and um, the sort of what I found is the more senior in leadership you go, the more uh, things become narrative driven. 
People、mm. are really trying to like drive towards an underlying narrative and less of this exploratory analysis.、Mm-hmm. Leadership is not conducting exploratory analysis. Leadership is attempting to sort of cr- to inform a narrative, to create a narrative that hopefully is、mm-hmm. driven by empiricism. Yeah. But they want to basically test a working philosophy, a working theory、mm-hmm. uh, against the reality of what of data. Yeah. So keeping in mind that your work is always going to be contextualized in some narrative process,、mm-hmm. uh, I think is really important. Yeah, that's a great point. I do. I also notice the same thing at work, and sometimes what's challenging for data scientists are: what if your, you know, higher management, the leadership has a narrative that's kind of wrong, but they're deeply believing that, and they just want you to find the data point to validate the narrative. And how do you approach the situation? How do you tell them, hey, the assumption? You have is wrong. Yeah,、um, that's a good question.、Um, I don't think there's any 100% correct way to do that. I do think there are some good guides.、Um, I don't know if you've heard of a book called Crucial Conversations. Yeah, I think I read a summary of、okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, basically, it's the art of like disappointing people. <laughs> <laughs> um, And that's something that we have to do、yeah. a lot of the time. And I often feel like the role of a data scientist is to be disappointing,、mm. um, and like it is important that we do that、uh, kind of honorably.、Yeah. Right. Much of our role is to be somebody who bursts the bubbles、mm-hmm. of other people. Yeah. Is to basically. Take what is just a narrative, an unsubstantiated narrative, and poke holes in it. Yeah. Right. Right. And test it.、Um, and that rigorous testing is where, if things really hold up after、mm-hmm. that testing, then we can act on it. Yeah. Right. Then、mm-hmm. we have the confidence to begin to kind of like approach things with like a high degree of rigor、right. and a high degree of speed and velocity and things like that.、Mm-hmm. So I I think that it's tough. Like every every organization refers to themselves. As being a data-driven organization, right. right? But what does that mean? I mean, like everybody paints charts to make、yeah. themselves look great,、mm-hmm. right?、Um, and、uh, everyone is it like is sort of like tooting or、uh, singing to the same tune about what they say、yeah. they do.、Um, and maybe the truth is that instead of,、um, I, I like for instance, sorry, I'm backing out here a little bit. I don't always think it's appropriate to use data to make decisions. I agree. Like I think a lot of the times, like it is、um, just an impediment. Trying to wait for the data is sometimes an excuse for not making confident decisions about what you want to do.、Mm-hmm. If you want to execute in a domain, don't wait. Just do it. Do it and see what happens. Like、mm-hmm. just like experiment and iterate. Yeah.、Um, but I think that when you are Kind of at the maybe understanding or at that research phase,、mm-hmm. attempting to, to attempting to sort of like hypothesize about whether your model is correct,、right. like whether your understanding of an ecosystem、mm-hmm. is correct. That's the time to sort of put on that scientific hat.、Um, but that scientific hat might be a different hat than the ex the、uh, person who's executing,、yeah. the person who's sort of operating in, in the domain.、Um, so as far as like how to、um, how to sort of present negative findings.、Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that we can be part of organizations that welcome negative findings,、yeah. that welcome that testing.、Um, and I think that you know part of the role of a data scientist is to help build that, build that、mm-hmm. sort of、uh, build that culture in、yeah. an organization. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I don't think there's an easy solution, but I think that um, it is partially why we exist as a profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think you you mentioned a very good point, which is very sounds counterintuitive that we shouldn't always look for data to make decisions. That reminds me of the anecdotes that I think Google. Uh, when they tried to test the right shade of blue, they did, uh, I don't know, tens of A-B testing to find the right shades of blue. I think if you know what you're trying to optimize, you can use data, use experimentation to uh, find the optimization. However, you will never able to build the next, uh, the idea of the new iPhone, uh, the new, I don't know, whatever it is through A-B testing, right? right? Because it's so new that there's no data in it. That's right. why you have to try and fail. Right. Um, I think that's a, a very important point. So sometimes if you're just looking for data, then there's no room for innovation. Right. I think that's true. Uh, one of my, I think uh, this is somewhat apocryphal. So I'm, I'm, I haven't yet substantiated this with actual research, but um I know, for instance, that increasingly uh, shows that have been like that are released have been designed based off of criteria. Mm-hmm. So, in for instance, they've been cast. Their plots have been chosen. Their um, sort of key aspects of like a television show mm-hmm. have been chosen through data science. Hmm. Um, and what I find is that it doesn't make good art. <laughs> it, right. It like it is. Uh, there is something that is uh, the gestalt, which is a fancy word for basically saying like some things are more than the sum of their parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is extremely difficult to encapsulate like lived experiences or very human experiences right. or ex- rapidly changing phenomena yeah. um, through the sort of like careful, careful measure. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to just be somebody who's um, I'm shy about making predictions of sort of human systems right like the weather mm-hmm. sure let's predict the weather yeah, yeah we can get incredibly good mm-hmm. at, at, at predicting the weather and we should do everything we can to to do it right? right but whenever we're dealing with something where there's a human in the loop um we are dealing with something that is uh, and this is getting a little bit nerdy here but mm-hmm. anti-inductive yeah so the idea of induction is that if i know what happened yesterday that gives me a good idea of what happens tomorrow you know mm-hmm. proof by induction right? right n implies n plus one right mm-hmm. but when you have a human in the loop you have a specific result of n plus one knows about n yeah it knows what it's predicted to mm-hmm. do and there it will incorporate that knowledge into the future. Right. And that's like fundamentally one of the problems with predicting markets mm-hmm. or predicting uh, recommendation algorithms yeah. or trying, for instance, to detect um, uh, like uh, anti-vaccine sentiment. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as they know what's detected, yeah. the, they'll use a new thing to, de- to, uh, to disguise their behavior. Right. Do you have an example in your life that you... <clears throat> Like a lot of other people are using data driven to make data to make decisions, but you <clears throat> follow something else. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, <laughs> I mean, generally, I believe mm-hmm. that a lot of things can be improved through data. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, I feel like a lot of people count calories, for instance. Yeah. Um, I'm fairly comfortable just eating with like principles. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't necessarily need to ag- adopt. Um, a highly rigorous or uh, data-driven approach. Yeah. But I think it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What about you? <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about, 
the decision of from when I um, live in China, moving to U.S., picking a university, and then moved to Seattle, then now living in San Francisco. Yeah. So the rational decision would be maybe looking at how many jobs those cities have or medium <clears throat> income, or I don't know if there's an index of, index of happiness, but I never really follow that. Of course, um, on a high level, no, those cities have are big cities. They have a lot of jobs and opportunities. But a lot of the time, I just kind of follow my intuition. Hey, I want to move to that city, see what happens. Um, I think, um, of course, if you ask me, how do I invest in stocks? How do I manage my wealth? I will definitely look into the data. But I think a lot of our life decisions, there's this sense of adventure or when people either say follow your heart, follow intuition or whatever. Um, I'm not really following the data. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I don't like it when people always say, oh, you're a data scientist, you should make decisions and this and that. Right. No, I'm a person. Yeah, I yeah. have a job as a data scientist. I know yeah. how to use data to solve problems. But data itself has a selection bias, right? There are a lot of things cannot be measured. And sure. if you're only using data, you're ignoring those things cannot be quantified. Um, yeah, so that's my the yeah, thesis. I, th I think that's a wonderful thesis. Yeah. And, I mean, just to make that very concrete, there's this whole idea of the paradox of choice. Exactly. Like, mm -hmm. if you spend all of your time evaluating the thousands of solutions, and you choose one, you choose some methods to select the, be the best solution, oftentimes people are less satisfied with their right. choice, right? Um, so I think it's totally true that there are domains in which um, the attempt to use data is actually kind of a fool's errand because it actually makes us less happy. Yeah, um, I think that's isn't that like, ironic to data scientists talking about not making <laughs> data to make decisions, right? But I think it's just because we under data so much, we we see you know the good, the bad, the ugly, so um, it make us keep thinking about right. that. Well, hopefully somewhere there's two artists talking mm. about how sometimes they need to be rigorous. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes right. they just trust the science. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh -huh. So going back to uh, the culture you, you talk about, I'm very interested in what do you think about, for example, if a data scientist working in a company that doesn't have a good um, culture to listen to the data science to really drop the bias and be open to um, objection of their assumptions. <clears throat> so if a data science is working in that type of environment, besides asking them to quit their job, um, how do you think they can change the culture? Well, I guess the first thing I, I think I would do is I would have a conversation with whoever hired me like, why am I here? Mm. Like, what do you want from right. this? Right? And you know, that can be potentially a hard conversation mm -hmm. because maybe what they imagined is somebody who would just execute yeah. on what they thought was true. Um, or maybe they just wanted somebody who would, you know, write the sequel. Right. To, be to, the data monkey. Right. Be the data monkey. Right. <laughs> In which case, like, there is a role for that. Right. Um, and, you know, we you can sort of like I think that one can directly question. Well, okay, um, I accept that this is how you conceived the role. However, I think there's ways for me to be more useful. Um, and like one of those ways might be like testing some of these hypotheses or investigating uh, these assumptions. Um, and it's not necessarily true that that's always going to be welcome. Hmm. Um, and I think that that can be a hard lesson sometimes, right? right? Um, 
but I, th- I think that probably it's to the benefit of anybody in their career mm-hmm. to really understand what's expected of them. Yeah. Like if it really is just that simple that they're expected to play that, mm-hmm. you know, that data monkey role, then that's good to know early. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and like, hopefully you can find your well, find yourself either joy in that position or you can find yourself to an organization that is, shares your concept of how right. to do things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know if there's a surefire answer to that. Um, I can definitely imagine uh, points in one's career where one would want, I just think that basic clarity is the first thing that you'd want. Right. Like, and having a sincere conversation with leadership about mm-hmm. what is what are their expectations and yeah. are they open to other ideas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, so when I look at, look at your uh, resume, um, you when you were doing grad school, you studied data structure and algorithms, kind of uh, some curriculum more in like a computer science major. So how do you uh, feel, did that um, help you become a um, better data scientist? I would say yes, absolutely. Um, now, I, I think that we are we are talking about data science as if it is a specific thing, but right. it's, it's really not, mm-hmm. right? Um, within the entire domain of data professions, there's an incredible variety. Yeah. Uh, there's the, you know, how I started with any sort of data, I was simply using Excel to mm-hmm. conduct very, very silly analyses and basic analyses. Then I was writing SQL. Um, then I was, you know, learning the very basics of statistics. Um, there, there's all these other terms for sort of related professions. There's data engineer. There's machine learning engineer. There's uh, data analyst. There's uh, statistician as mm-hmm. a separate profession. Yeah. There's A/B test, uh, like you could talk about a testing lead or an mm-hmm. A/B, t- A/B test infrastructure, right? All sorts of different dimensions. And uh, I basically think that if if you're going to be really, really, really broad and, and take the perspective of um, all of the things that pertain to data science, I mean, basically, it's everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you could even in- include web front end if you're talking about data visualization and things like that. Um, so, But I do think that there are some things that get hit on a little bit more consistently than others. Um, and I do think that knowing about data structures and algorithms, runtime, the uh, computational complexity yeah. uh, associated with solutions to problems is one of those things that, at least in my career, I've seen pop up over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and a lack of understanding of those things can frequently be a barrier to, to providing reasonable solutions. Yeah. So um, what are some topics that you wish more people have studied in school or by themselves? Um, I mean, I think it's it's helpful to know the idea of big O notation, which mm-hmm. is like a common computer science, just talking about algorithmic complexity. Yeah, I think it's very helpful. Um, a lot of things I think are very dif- difficult to become familiar with in an academic environment, and they really do require a little bit of uh, exposure in industry. Um, but I'll 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 say that in my own journey. Um, coming from a program that was in statistics and operations research with some courses in computer science, Mm -hmm. um, the whole environment of distributed computing and how distributed computing works or any of the tools there was an enormously steep learning curve. It was extremely hard uh, 
chal- I'll say it was challenging. It mm-hmm. was like it was like a, a challenge I enjoyed, but it was very, very, very steep learning curve to kind of become adjusted to yeah. how infrastructure works, how mm-hmm. data infrastructure works. Yeah. So I, I think that even a fundamental familiarity with the tools available and those mm-hmm. sorts of things can be a, a big eye opener. It can yeah. it can make it it can be de- demystify how things work. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned it was a very steep learning curve. So how did you maintain your motivation when you were learning that? So I I think about this a lot actually, and I, as a manager, I think about this a lot. Like, what is the appropriate way? What is the appropriate rate of exposure to new concepts? Right. Yeah. Um, because if you're exposed to at too high a rate, you get discouraged. Everyone gets discouraged. There's no one in the world that can just hammer away at an impossible problem and not be discouraged. Right. I don't care who we're talking about. And there's also no one in the world that can just do the same, same, same thing every day <laughs> and not get bored mm-hmm. or complacent. Yeah. So there's some optimal mix and maybe that optimal mix is different from person to person about mm-hmm. what what is the appropriate rate of new material yeah. um, but for me it's my own version of the 80 20 rule mm. i think that one should be striving for between 80 and 85 percent familiar concepts that you can execute on well and about 15 percent of like new things that are challenging mm-hmm. and for me, that was enabled by the fact that I was really paired with a really good engineering partner. Mm-hmm. So the parts of that were new, I had a guide. And I was also a guide for somebody mm. else. So it was a really wonderful pairing. Yeah, was it in grad school or in your uh, work? This was at work, yeah. So this was at work, yeah. So I think that having a really good pairing between engineers and data Mm. science is like an immensely rich and rewarding experience for both sides. Right. I think the yeah, I think organizations and individuals benefit from that. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I also feel when I was working engineer, I learned so much from them. And uh, uh, it actually might be helpful for data scientists when you are at work. It's not just uh, good to have a senior data scientist, a mentor. Try to find a mentor in uh, as an engineer, yeah. and you can learn a lot from them because eventually your data science solution is going to be in production. And it's good to know how they work, how they think, what's, what are their standards. Yeah. So. And uh, I think it's also just to add a little bit of a footnote to that. Mm-hmm. It can be really nice to find an engineer who is interested in data science. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Of which there are many. Um, Like there are many, many engineers who are interested in learning more about statistics and machine learning and things like that. So So it's a win-win situation. It's a win-win situation. And uh, um, you spend a lot of time working on auction design and analysis. So can you... um, tell the audience who uh, what is auction design and why is that important in ads? Sure. Uh, I mean, auctions are a huge area of technology. Um, so I don't, let's see where to start with that, with that idea. Um, you know, we all, I think we all have this, uh, we, we, we might all be familiar with the concept of uh, a very simple auction where they're auctioning off art mm-hmm. or cattle or something like that. Um, and somebody is basically putting the item up and people are bidding against that item, how much they want to pay. Um, and there's sort of a, I, I can't remember if that's called an, an English auction. I think that might be the formal name for that kind where people just iteratively say the price they're willing to pay and bid against yeah. each other. But there's all sorts of different auction designs. Um, there's um, 
and auction design is like almost an ent- entire discipline in, a, in, a, in and of itself, a part of a kind of a, a sub-discipline of something called mechanism design, mm. um, which itself is related to economic game theory and things like that. So um, auctions are an incredibly important part of the internet. Um, I mean, almost every single free website you used is powered through ads and all behind almost every single ad system is an auction system. Mm -hmm. And so the study of ads auctions, which are one of the, I mean, obviously one of the largest scale systems of auctions in the world, um, and also one of the fastest, uh, kinds of auctions you can have in the world mm-hmm. um, is is something that a lot of anal- analytical energy goes into and a lot of engineering energy goes into mm-hmm. to making those things work better uh, for uh, better for the sites that they run on better for the users that they're uh, helping auction off or better for the advertisers that are making use of the ads mm-hmm. um, and then what type of algorithms or models you use to solve this type of problem Well, I think the um, dealing with ad tech, um, the the fundamental question is, um, what ads do you show? To whom do you show them? Mm -hmm. To when? When do you show them? And uh, how much does it cost the advertiser? So resolving all of those questions uh, is kind of like unpacking, uh, I don't know, unpacking a suitcase where you can never get to the bottom. Yeah. but a, like one of the most common components of any sort of ad auction system is a probability of event. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, one of the big powers or one of the huge, huge differentiators between um, the f- uh, internet advertising and let's say a newspaper or a billboard is the ability to be dynamic, Yeah. right? We can, we can change this content out depending on who's looking at it. Mm-hmm. Well, how should we change it out? Why why should we bother changing it mm-hmm. out? Well, the thing is that we can guide it by what we by the behavior because yeah. we can observe the behavior that somebody has after seeing the ad. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the whole idea of click through rate or the view through rate mm-hmm. and things like that, where we are thanks to the ability to to look at behavior before seeing an ad, while seeing an ad, and after seeing an ad. Mm-hmm we can begin to have data on what, how advertising is actually affecting people's behavior. And we can begin to then make predictions about that behavior. Mm-hmm. And then you can come up with this whole idea of, well, what order should you show ads? Well, you should show them the most relevant ones first or the ones that are going to like, uh, that are going to attract their eyes the, the, the most, right? Sure. Um, and, and to some degree that is, uh, both, of course, beneficial for advertisers because they're getting clicked on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also beneficial for the users because they are seeing relevant material, yeah. right? There's things like it's it, it's probably better than seeing something totally irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that there's a number of caveats here because there are totally very gimmicky and negative ways of getting people to click on things, yeah. like the clickbait, mm-hmm. right? Um but on average, I think a relevant ad experience is probably a better ad experience than an irrelevant ad experience. Right. Um, and this sounds like a lot of very interesting problem to solve. So for data scientists who are interested in this domain, um, what do they, for example, if they're interviewing a role um, focusing on auction, what type of 
course or books should they read to prepare for interviews? That's a good question, but let's take a look up here at the bookshelf and see. <laughs> um, I don't want to like just say go read a textbook, but mm -hmm. I'll just share some books that I think yeah, are kind of, of interesting. So, um, and I can't claim to have read all of these, but mm -hmm. I'll claim to have at least skimmed them. <clears throat> the catalog. Yeah. So, twenty uh, lectures on algorithmic game theory mm -hmm. by Tim Roughgarden. Yeah. Um, is one that is sort of like viewed as a canonical work. Um, here's another one that also has him in the as one of the authors. Wow, it's a big book. It's a big book, and I can't claim to have made it very far in this one. Um, and another one, which so is a lot of game theory. Game theory mm -hmm. is like at the core of auctions. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the, I think one of the, these are both very technical. Um, mm -hmm. A book that is not as technical and I think is extremely good mm -hmm. um, is called Who Gets What and Why, uh, and that book is upstairs, uh, but I can't, uh, so I can't get it. But that is, <clears throat> that is the. Uh, work of the a Nobel laureate in economics mm -hmm. and it's basically him uh, writing a very approachable um, summary of mm -hmm. his life's work of his research wow. um, and this the um, uh, uh, forgive me but I can't remember the name of the author but he was the inventor of the med school residency matching algorithm oh wow um, and he's also the person who co-developed the kidney exchange, the American mm. Kidney Exchange, which oh, basically wow. matches donors and recipients mm -hmm. for kidneys. Um, he's worked with um, law schools and with the uh, regarding the judge matching system. Mm -hmm. um, he's basically somebody who like just such a brilliant speaker and writer about systems and incentives and uh, game theory. Yeah. Uh, I find his work to be really fascinating. And his, this book in particular is just a wonderful, wonderful introduction to this way of thinking. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I want to read this book now. So uh, you learn so much about game theory. Have you applied to your uh, life philosophy? Yeah, probably in ways that aren't always nice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so <clears throat> maybe here's one way. Mm -hmm. um, when you're trying to plan an event, like having defection is a really bad is a really bad problem. Yeah. Right. So if like people who are flaky, how do you deal with flaky people in your normal life? Right. It's really disappointing to deal with flaky people, yeah. right? Because you're planning a dinner party mm -hmm. and you bought all this food and then, yeah. all, and then all of a sudden they're gone. And yeah. you're like, well, now I have this extra and they only told me at the last minute. Right. Get them to pay first. Mm -hmm. mm. Right? Get it so that there's uh, money down, so there's pre-commitment to, right. this, to this outcome. Yeah. Um, and like find really friendly ways to do it, obviously, mm -hmm. or find ways, you know, find ways of basically, maybe you could even donate the money to a cause, but right. you're collecting it, you're collecting it up front so that you're making sure that there's a less of a sunk cost mm -hmm. for you and also giving everyone else an incentive to follow through on their commitment. Yeah. So that's one, that's one, one maybe very mm -hmm. personal example. Yeah, yeah. Um, another way, let's see, if I think about how game theory is applied in my daily life is during the pandemic um i was one of those people that kind of did the digital nomading thing yeah right you did um and uh in one situation i was living with a in a in a uh, sort of a retreat center we mm. were we were at 14 people that were dividing up space in a large in a large property and we had to come up with a way of choosing which rooms we were going to have 
So we knew how much the total rent for the property was. Um, and we knew that people had very different preferences, very strong preferences about this or that that they were going um, to do. They wanted this room, but they didn't want that room. They you know, felt very strongly about that. So we wanted to find, and I'll, I'll credit the organizer, Danny, with wanting to find a fair way to divide up the rooms mm-hmm. and split up costs in a fair way. Right. And he researched a game theoretic, <laughs> a game theoretic method of doing so. Okay. Uh, and I, it was a algorithm. Oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the algorithm. Um, I believe it was a Chinese or a Chinese American author mm-hmm. um, who developed so and so's algorithm for fair division. Okay. And so we all put in our relative prices of, mm-hmm. that we priced out what we thought each room was worth as a proportion of the total rent. Interesting. And the result was it just spit out room assignments Mm -hmm. and no one had anything more to say. And it was just done. So it was just like, it was a very, very good way of Mm -hmm. splitting up, splitting things up and creating a fair system of division. Yeah. So. Wow, so data science is um, useful in Yeah, life. you can apply yeah. it, yeah, yeah. What are some mistakes you made earlier in your career? So talking about this role of the data scientist as the, uh, the person who's not afraid to disappoint people mm-hmm. or not afraid to burst the bubbles of other folks, yeah. I think that there's part of me that really likes doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a bit of a iconoclastic and contrarian Mm. personality. And I actually think that data scientists often have a contrarian personality, (laughs) right? They're like, prove it to me, right? right? I think that is a strength. Like, I think that it's important to have a a little vein of contrarianism. Mm -hmm. Like, we need to be persuaded that things are real. Yeah. Um, But I think for me, I think I embraced that contrarianism a little bit too strongly. Mm. Um, And I took a lot of uh, pleasure in the process of saying how other people are wrong, yeah. for instance, maybe too publicly, yeah. maybe maybe not very delicately. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I were to go back and caution myself, it'd be like, hey, be mindful, because ultimately you're, you're playing an infinite game with these people. Yeah. You're not playing a one-off game. Right. You're gonna, whatever you say, you're gonna have to deal with them tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have to deal with them in a year, you yeah. know? I think that I would probably um, say that like embracing my inner contrarian or mm. my, my inter, inner sort of like uh, argumentative side at different points has been a weakness yeah, in my career. Wow. Yeah. I just noticed I also made similar mistakes, especially when I also used to work with product managers on A-B testing. And then at that time, I was kind of a little bit like a data tyrant. Hey, your result is bad. You shouldn't launch it. But sometimes maybe there are some other reasons that they do need to launch it. I think for our, it's very tricky. Um, For our role is to facilitate them to make the decision, but you shouldn't say, hey, just because this is the data, then you shouldn't make make the decision. Right. And that's something I realized a few years later. So for for you, the way you talk about it just sounds like you have great self-awareness when you reflect on that. Did you always have that type of awareness and how did you develop that? Um, I think through making mistakes mm-hmm. and through suffering from mistakes, yeah. you begin to reflect on, because sometimes somehow your 
your sense of what should be in the world is different than what's happening. Exactly. And you're like, you're like, okay, well, what's what's going on here? Mm-hmm. How is my model wrong? Right. right? Yeah. And the thing is that you wind up realizing that your modeling of yourself is incorrect. Mm-hmm. You're actually your understanding of how you are perceived is incorrect. Right. And I think that's a really big opportunity to kind of reflect. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so I often do think that failures are, are one of the blessings there because yeah. it is when you fail and it doesn't have to be a dramatic, terrible failure. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't want to recommend anyone have career ending failures, yeah. but blundering a bit is a way to make really learn important lessons. Mm-hmm. And so I think, uh, you know, fail 15% of the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe yeah. not quite that much, but, <laughs> um, yeah. Subject yourself to situations that require you to reflect mm-hmm. and require you to learn and adapt. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this is something, maybe a, a larger commentary, like, especially at the beginning of one's career, mm-hmm. um, you will screw up. Yeah. Like, and you should. And it's because you screw up that sometimes, eventually, when you recover from your screw ups, mm-hmm. It's like everyone, uh, sorry, I keep interrupting myself, but I'm going to say everyone always criticizes uh, technology or they comment about technology being a domain in which people switch careers very quickly. Yeah. Two years, four years at a place, et cetera. Whereas in other careers, working four years might be like a minimum. Mm -hmm. Like they really feel like they have to stay a long time. Right. Um, But I think that that's, first of all, a sign of the fact that people are um, in a a domain that is evolving very quickly, Mm -hmm. but also because there isn't there's a, a way of sort of es- dealing with institutional memory. Mm. Like if you've committed a bunch of mistakes in a place, and I think you should be committing mistakes in a place to learn, yeah. then it, that can be a hard place to then have a group of people that are kind of like confident behind you. Mm. Um, so not being afraid or not feeling like you have to be held to the standards of your peers in that particular company is kind of liberating. Yeah, Like you feel like, oh, like, I've learned so much here um, and I've learned through mistakes I've committed. Um, and that makes me feel like I know what to do when I encounter these systems in the future. And maybe by virtue of making these mistakes, I'll be a better data scientist in the future wherever I go next. I'll be a better manager whenever I deal with uh, having a team. Um, and I think that like being able to truly embrace the, um, you know, embrace the chaos to some degree of the fact that like learning's hard and like career progression is Mm -hmm. hard and no one's narrative almost no one's narrative is without failures almost every single person that you see i mean especially people that have had success that you admire Mm -hmm. they've crossed bridges to get there yeah they've taken risks and probably failed on their way there Mm -hmm. yeah and for i remember when i was a new data scientist i didn't have a lot of confidence when I present my results, my analysis, I was so afraid of failure. So um, how did you build confidence uh, gradually? How did you feel comfortable about making mistakes or looking stupid, asking questions? Well, I think getting feedback from people early, right? Um, And this is one of the most important things that I think a good manager can do is a good manager can create an environment where that feedback is really is actually a gift. Mm-hmm. Not like um, it's an opportunity for everyone to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a blame game. It's not a, it's not a place where people are worried about their jobs or right. worried about their bonuses, right? Creating an opportunity where people are sharing their insights and being challenged mm-hmm. 
by people who respect their integrity and respect the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find, for instance, that one of the best ways to have confidence about your results when you're sharing them externally is to first subject them to an internal audit. Mm. So you first, you come up with a group of people that are all have a similar training. Yeah. And in that group, if you're able to persuade the people in that group, then when they're presented inter- externally, it's going to be like, no brainer. Of right. course, I got it. Yeah, that's very important. I definitely made this. I wouldn't say a mistake. Uh, I had a presentation to external team, but I didn't have someone from my team to take a look at that. And then there is a important piece I missed. And then I just did poorly in the external meeting. And then we realized, okay, we need to have this mechanism before we do external presentation, we have each other kind of cross check our work not to criticize ourselves, but just kind of um, because data science is different than just having code reviews. It's similar to model reviews. Um, yeah, I think that's a very smart thing to do. Yeah, I mean, analytical reviews, model reviews. I mean, a culture of review. Right. And even a celebration of review. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it should be deeply ingrained as part mm-hmm. of the process. Yeah. Um, but it's not always easy to build. Like people get very, uh, there's a natural tendency for people to become quite intellectually protective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that academia suffers from this a lot. People can be very protective of their results or their methods um, and shy about publishing or racing to publish and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Um, So sometimes overcoming those kinds of biases can be important in in establishing like a truly communal process of like holding each other to higher standards Mm -hmm. and all all sort of opting into a process. Yeah. 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 That's great. As a data scientist at Facebook, what's your day to day like working on ads and A-B testing infrastructure? Yeah. So I was primarily focused on the uh, very, very narrow domain Mm -hmm. of looking at the performance of extremely large advertisers and the way that their uh, ads performed in the auction. Um, understanding the sort of inner workings of different auction components and trying to understand basically what processes or what procedures or what strategies could firms use to further enhance their performance. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was like, it was highly specialized um, and it was sort of on this like last end of like like basically uh, customer orientation in terms of looking at uh, you know, the technical analysis of the auction on behalf of the most sophisticated users of the auction. Oh, wow. And then trying to basically under, trying to be somebody of an intermediary who is there to, to basically understand, make recommendations about mm-hmm. auction functioning and study the performance of the auction. Oh, interesting. So, what kind of tools did you use? Oh, well, all of Facebook's internal tools. Oh, internal yeah, tools. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, as with many very large tech companies, mm-hmm. uh, Facebook's internal tooling is quite mature. Yeah. Um, I believe that their internal uh, sort of uh, obviously Presto is like mm-hmm. uh, is a, uh, you know, a very low latency mm-hmm. uh, SQL engine. Um, and Presto is used through a front end Oh, that I can't remember the name of, which is like an awesome sort of plotting front end where you can just like run SQL queries and have visualizations on mm-hmm. them almost instantly. Um, and uh, a kind of cool little tidbit is like uh, Airflow um, was originally composed at Facebook, um, but the engineer wanted to open source the project. Mm. Um, and Facebook did not want to, apparently. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Um, and so the engineer decided to leave Facebook and went oh. to, went to Airbnb and basically rewrote the entire project Wow! Uh, with the stipulation that they needed to open source mm-hmm. it. And so the Airflow, this tool that is extremely commonly used now across industry, was open sourced because of this one engineer who was very stubborn. Wow. So hmm. I don't know his name, but yeah. that'd be a good story to dig into. Yeah, that would be a good story. It could be someone I interview at some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What is your long-term career goal? Well, I guess I I think as mentioned, I really like uh, I like helping build out uh, an organization, okay. build out processes, yeah. um, and you know I, I guess it depends on what what ones I mean what one sort of criteria are for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, obviously money is a big reason why we work. Um, yeah, but. It's probably an insufficient, like working for money alone is like, is not usually a very uh, um, fulfilling uh, thing to to line up with. So I think for me, it's a combination of being able to work in with a problem space that Mm -hmm. I find really compelling. Yeah. um, And also work at an organization that I feel like I'm helping build and serve. um, And, you know, working on something that like, has some potential to do, I guess, something non-negative in the mm-hmm. world. I, I, you know, I don't think that, um, I don't think all jobs are just jobs. Um, you know, we are part of a very complicated uh, ecosystem of technologies yeah. and uh, our, and society. Um, and I do think that what we do matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, not always the case that one that one doesn't always have the opportunity to work with things that they think matter mm-hmm. right like i think that we often we have to make we all make compromises about whether or not we work in alignment with our values yeah. or not but one thing hopefully as one career one's career develops mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to make that decision yeah right mm-hmm. um and i uh i always get inspired by people who seem to be progressing towards their values, towards mm-hmm. working in alignment with their values or their passions, yeah. right? Whatever mm-hmm. that be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, I mean, I I truly believe, I don't have any plans to act on this in the immediate future, but I truly believe that like climate change is a really, really, like maybe the most important issue of our mm-hmm. times. And so if there is room at some point in the future to make, to, to make, to be effective in that domain. Uh, that's something that I, I could imagine myself being really passionate about. Oh, wow. Yeah. I also think that, you know, on the f- total flip side of things, yeah. I think that uh, cryptocurrency and I think that de- uh, decentralized finance mm-hmm. is a, a extremely interesting and new, new force in the world. Yeah. Um, and it has both positive and negative implications. Uh, but I think that's a space that is going to dramatically shape the future as well. Yeah. So how do you see data science play a role in decentralized finance? It's a good question. Maybe if I had the answer for that, <laughs> I would already, uh, I'd already be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting uh, uh, computer science mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, in, in those domains. I mean, the, the, uh, decentralized finance is all just cryptography mm-hmm. it's applied cryptography yeah. it's fascinating how these things that you know seem just like um 
you know, when you're in, when you're in grad school or, or when you're taking courses in algorithms and you learn about hashing, mm-hmm. um, it's just abstract. Um, but all of like all of modern secure computation relies on math- mathematics. Um, yeah. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, as far as concrete applications, I mean, there's interesting things uh, such as the as Oracle networks, mm-hmm. uh, which are basically using uh, trusted sources of data to indicate the truth or falseness. So, for instance, you could imagine um, something that is monitoring the uh, rainfall levels, and you have a whole bunch of different like uh, hardware detectors that are yeah. basically transmitting a signal to uh, to a blockchain. And there is some sort of decision criteria that if rainfall exceeds some amount, then something happens. Mm-hmm. Or if rainfall is below some amount, then something happens. Yeah. Um, that's sort of more in the domain of smart contracts. But yeah, the applications, I mean, as with the domain of finance in general, the application of rigorous statistical thinking to, I guess, uh, decentralized currencies as a marketplace. I mean, that's already been incredibly influential in, I mean, creating uh, all sorts of uh, high-frequency trading uh, mm-hmm. applications in, in, inside of the Bitcoin ecosystem and Ethereum ecosystem. So I'm sure that there's tons of applications in those domains. Um, another domain that like using cryptography or blockchain to basically serve as like a, a form of validation that things like an ad impression has been served and mm. the use, use in ad tech. I don't think that that's been explored. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I think that there are basically like thousands of uh, applications of these technologies that we just haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so besides cryptocurrency, uh global warming <laughs> try to catch the fly i'm trying to catch the fly uh, what are some other things you you like to do when you're not working on data science um let's see i, I try to stay relatively well read so i read i read lots of history books mm-hmm. um and i try to enjoy uh enjoy life as much as possible getting mm-hmm. you know outdoors and yeah Going to the parks, going mm-hmm. roller skating is a yeah. big thing of mine. Okay. Yeah. Mountain climbing, mm-hmm. um, bike riding, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. As far as like uh, technically speaking, um, sometimes I make progress through some of these technical books. You know, it, 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 it's a, I really enjoy um, kind of like, I really enjoy kind of like diving in for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I can feel like I'm, slogging through things and my, my pace through like a technical book can be very, yeah, very slow. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think that's, that's normal. Um, it does take time to um, digest technical books. So, for example, when you are reading a very difficult part of a book or say at work, you have some stressful situation. How do you handle those times? Take a break. Take a break. Yeah, I think taking a break is a wonderful strategy. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, it's it's not always the case that uh, taking a break, um, that I, I don't always get back to the thing that I was originally mm-hmm. sort of focusing on. I, you know, I think for me, it's really important to have an application to really motivate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to work through, work through something that I feel like is like imminently or useful is like a good strategy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what is that? I just read this on Twitter the other day, which was the uh, the best debugger is a walk in the park. 
<laughs> yeah, or like a hot shower. Or a hot shower, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious who, so who you were, who you were when you were a teenager or a kid? <laughs> I think I was probably a contrarian nerd. Contrarian in the fact that I really liked to debate.、Mm -hmm. um, I thought I knew everything. I was、uh, extremely willing to like pick intellectual fights. Yeah. Not very, not very much physical fights, but intellectual fights. I was all、mm -hmm. about intellectual fights.、Yeah. But then you decided to study history and Chinese yeah. in college. Yeah.、Um, I mean, I think probably I was actually very interested in kind of revolutionary movements、mm. um, and、uh, sort of like non Western history in particular. Yeah. Just because I, I grew up in a town that was.、Um, A very, very progressive, a、mm -hmm. kind of like a, a place where people, like for instance, in my high school, there was a fairly large protest against the Iraq War、yeah. in 2003, I、mm -hmm. guess, is when the, when the invasion happened after September 11th.、Um, and I was an organizer. I was a co organizer among with a group, bunch of other people、oh, wow. of this protest. And so we walked out of school in the middle of the day and you know, had, this, had this sort of.、Uh, Activism that we did.、Mm. So I was surrounded by a bunch of like activist kids. Wow.、Um, and one of my,、uh, I mean, several of my classmates went on to become、uh, activists in their early 20s.、Mm -hmm. um, some were associated with the、uh, like anti coal,、uh, coal mining activities、mm -hmm. in、yeah. like West Virginia. So、mm -hmm. there was a, There was a very, very large, there was a trend called mountaintop removal in、mm -hmm. which mountains were basically turned into pits、yeah. uh, to mine coal.、Um, and there was a fair amount of environmental activism in protest of these things.、Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of my peer group、um, when, I was, when, I was,、uh, when I was in high school.、Um, and I kind of followed that interest、uh, of kind of like anti establishment、um, and anti capitalist、uh, kind of. I guess activism、mm -hmm. um, and anti war activism by wanting to like really explore other narratives in history and like looking at like looking at other parts of the world and、mm -hmm. how、uh, how things had gone in other parts of the world.、Um, so I remember taking women's history. I took a、um, post colonial Africa, history of post colonial Africa.、Uh, took a history of the Vietnam War.、Mm -hmm. uh, took a history of Uh, Russia since,、uh, since Stalin.、Um, so, a bunch of fascinating courses.、Uh, you know, I studied abroad in China. I、yeah. was、uh, very interested in sort of understanding、um, just non Western narratives of the world,、yeah. um, non American narratives of the、mm. world.、Um, and I think I got like a lot of really wonderful exposure. Yeah.、Um, and、uh, I. I, I left college, I think, le much less radical than when I started. Okay.、Um, how, uh, how so? I think really the, the big turning point for me was in actually living abroad and living、mm -hmm. in China. I guess I gained an appreciation for um, how, uh, how difficult it is to have. Good rules or even、mm. reasonable rules,、yeah. like not even necessarily good rules, just、mm -hmm. rules that aren't crap. Right.、Um, and to have social norms、mm -hmm. that are、uh, positive, or,、um, and I guess I, I think I, and this sounds obviously very, you know, I, I sit here as a white American man working in, in the technology industry and like I, I'm aware of all of those aspects、yeah. uh, of, of, you know, basically saying that America's great, but like, 
I honestly believe that it's better than it has been mm-hmm. for most people ever before in history. Right. And that it was actually really hard to get here. Yeah. So I, I have, a, I think, a little bit of an appreciation for um, how fragile positive social norms are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that living abroad made me aware. Uh, and for instance, studying the history of the Chinese Cultural Revolution yeah. and studying the history of the of Chinese Civil War, mm-hmm. reading about the sort of liquidation of the kulaks in Russia, uh, reading about the experiences of colonization in much of the world. Like, you know, it, we live in a very unprecedented time of peace and prosperity. Yeah. I think it's actually really unique. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I feel very fortunate mm-hmm. that we've been able to create this space for peace yeah. and prosperity, yeah. even while also believing that it's uh, it's really important to keep improving it. Yeah. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time learning all the history. I'm curious, how does it change your perspective in career? Or do you feel you learn something from history, philosophy that helps you to be a better data scientist? Uh, yeah. And so this is like, this is something I actually kind of like to think about. I actually think they're really related. Yeah. Right. So hear me out. So, um, all right, I'm going to wax philosophical for a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the statistics is, um, fundamentally the science of empiricism. Like, how do we know anything? Right. Like, uh, any sort of medical trial, anything like that at all, mm-hmm. is a function of basically distributions and and things that we can say with confidence about distributions. Right. So the undergirding of every single scientific conclusion is statistical in mm-hmm. nature. Um, history, I think, when done well, is also the study of um, large patterns of behavior. Yeah. Um, it often is sort of explored through a specific person's narrative mm-hmm. or a specific individual's life. Yeah. Um, but honestly speaking, it is the study of human systems, like of society level systems mm-hmm. as they change and as they evolve over time. So I think of them as being um, very much tied to the similar idea of basically studying patterns mm. um, uh, in large populations. Yeah, um, yeah. And there are specific ways where this actually informs it. So, for example, archaeology, which is, you know, digging things up. Um, basically, history is sort of, div- the study of history is divided between the archaeological record, mm-hmm. like when you go and actually dig in the earth and what do you find and see, yeah. and the written record. Which is like what are the, what's written down? What are people saying, right? And these two things don't always line up, mm-hmm. right? Like people can write things that is like we're like okay, uh, we think you're lying, yeah, right, right, yeah. Or they can either include things, and then we're like, well, now we have a clue. We can go over here and dig and see if we can actually find evidence of this mm-hmm. thing. So there's a very big interplay between the archaeological record and the written record of yeah. a period of time. Um, and obviously, prior to their written languages, all we have is the archaeological record. Mm-hmm. Like we don't we don't know anything about uh, 
all we know about human prehistory or about civilizations that didn't have a written script mm -hmm. is preserved through the archaeological record. Yeah. But archaeology uh, is, is becoming more and more data-driven. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you can have uh, studies of basically using uh, geographical mapping and looking at the uh, concentrations of different kinds of archaeological records. Yeah. So, for instance, like imagine like... Uh, clay clay pots mm -hmm. right uh, you can estimate the size of of ancient populations mm. by looking at the concentration and density of oh, earthenware interesting um, you can look at gis so like the use of gis uh, global, global uh, gis to basically map old civilizations yeah. can be done by by gis archaeology mm -hmm. and like using statistical means yeah um new means of i don't know if you're familiar with the idea of the dead sea scrolls have you heard of the dead sea scrolls no so this is a set of very ancient uh texts that are rolled up very tight in papyrus and mm. i believe that they're from the uh either the egyptian era or or after the egyptian era in the middle east yeah. and they're buried in these caves mm -hmm. and if you if you try to unroll them it just breaks it yeah. Right, so you just destroy the evidence, and so they've just been sitting there, rolled up now for decades and decades and decades. Oh wow! But they contain written, uh, written language on mm -hmm. them. So uh, hypothetically, if we could read them, we could discover so much more about the uh, the ancient world. Yeah. So there's currently work to use algorithmic means to basically model their folds and try to unfold them digitally. Wow. Using sort of model, mm -hmm. uh, modern modeling methods and things like that. Yeah. So there's tons of little like, I don't know, explorations mm -hmm. and things like that mm -hmm. I think are very interesting. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, do you see yourself at <laughs> some point combine your knowledge of history and data science or you work on those type of topics? Good, good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think of uh, studying economic systems, studying markets, I think is a kind of a applied data, mm -hmm. uh, data science applied to humanity. Yeah. Um, and uh Obviously, the availability of data. I, I, I'm not sure if I'll ever be more than a fanboy of just mm -hmm. reading, reading, reading about these topics with great interest. Yeah. Um, maybe one domain which I think is also uh, potentially more accessible is uh, genomics and mm -hmm. looking at basically the spreading of different kind of uh, the spreading of humanity uh, as measured through changes in genes mm -hmm. um, and genetics. So you can often validate and invalidate um, different historical records through the study of uh, basically gene prevalence over time. Yeah. Um, so we often, it's kind of a trope to talk about how the Mongol invasion resulted in lots and lots of children that were attributable to the Mongol emperors. And yeah. Genghis Khan had, you know, however many hundred kids, right? But the truth is you can actually measure that. You can measure the Mongol invasion by its impact in genetics, mm. by virtue of the fact that uh, many, many, many people in Central Asia, Northern China, mm -hmm. and either in Eastern Europe have a DNA that is sort of like Northern Asian in origin. Yeah. And there's lots of other things that you can sort of like see, you can see reflected, history reflected in the study of genetics. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's another another domain that is potentially very interesting. Yeah. And that's especially with like uh, sites like 23andMe and things mm -hmm. like that, where people are becoming more and more aware of their yeah. genetic predispositions. Um, it might be interesting to like take a take it to dive deep into that yeah. and look at uh, 
historical human migration patterns mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Have you tried 23 and Me? I haven't. No. I uh, <laughs> I'd be interested. Yeah, I could do that. I just yeah. haven't I haven't bothered to get around to it. Yeah. yeah. Have you done it? No, I'm probably just 100% Chinese. You never know though because <laughs> Like even Chinese identity is actually very complicated. Mm. There's lots of movements inside China. Yeah. So, but it's also true that 23andMe is predominantly serving uh, European and American clients. Mm -hmm. So their ability to draw very like interesting, Mm -hmm. make interest, draw interesting conclusions in Asia, I think is somewhat limited. Yeah. Um, So in general, um, what do you think the future of data science will look like, say, five years, 10 years, or 20 years? Well, I think, uh, I mean, automation is the name of the game, right? Mm. So everything about our lives will be more and more automated. Yeah. I think the, the, you know, the tools available to us will become more and more sophisticated. So for instance, one thing I've noticed just even over the course of the last two or three years is the novelty has worn off. Like Mm -hmm. it's no longer, it no longer feels all that cutting edge Mm -hmm. to talk about deep learning. And this is like in our domain, for instance, a lot of people, for a lot of, a lot of folks, it's still like very, very far away. But uh, these sorts of things become democratized, right? Knowledge, knowledge of these things becomes democratized. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means that the marginal value of knowing something maybe decreases a little bit. Yeah. Right. And uh, I think Andrew Ung um, just recently you know, tweeted something, which I just, to me, just struck me, which I thought was just totally accurate, which was like the, the, the day of building a company with data science or AI as the forefront thing that you're doing, it's just not happening anymore. Yeah. Like you can't, like what you need to do is have an applied business problem. Exactly. You need to have a domain in which mm-hmm. you want to make a specific impact and uh, these are just tools in the toolbox to help achieve that effect. Yeah, I saw someone uh, have po- have a post on LinkedIn. It's pretty funny. He said, "I don't care if our business is running by AI or by a hamster, as long as it's working." Yes. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although, if we could train hamsters to do it, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> great. Yeah. yeah. And in order to prepare the future of data science, what do you think the new data scientist? can do today so they can still have a competitive edge in the future. I guess my sincere advice to folks is um, don't become pigeonholed. Learn how things work all the way down. And I think that often does mean venturing into the territory that is um, often considered the the role of engineers. Mm -hmm. But I think that knowing how things work at all the layers is extremely important. Um, All the layers meaning? Oh, just for instance, like if you're comfortable interacting with your distributed data query engine, Mm. you should learn how that query engine works, Yeah. right? You should learn what are the ways that query engines are improving, right? right? And I think that there's sort of like two lines of investigation that one can take as a data. Like fundamentally, I think that there's sort of a, a divide. Like if you are in the position of a data expert, your, your knowledge should expand in one or both of these mm-hmm. directions. The first is you should become technically proficient in your tools and you should be gain a deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper proficiency in your tools. Yeah. The other is you should become deep more and more and more proficient in your domain, mm-hmm. in the business domain. Yeah. And so that you are somebody who knows 
about the entire marketplace. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I fundamentally think that like either of those trajectories can be really fruitful mm -hmm. and really wonderful. Yeah. Personally, I think I have found myself more interested in the technical things. Okay. And I think one of the reasons is because I have an interest in a very broad variety of domains. Mm -hmm. So the technolo technological solutions can be consistent from domain A to domain B. Right. And I think I prefer that I that ability to be broad rather than feeling like I have to uh, like I need to basically just hunker down. Like for instance, I worked at Indeed for a long time. Indeed is in the HR domain. It's it's that's all. It's about getting people jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Indeed is a wonderful place to work on that. And my next work was at a social media company. The yeah. the domain was totally different. Mm -hmm. Like it was a very different domain of the economy. Yeah. Um. But I because my focus and interest was more on the technologies. Mm -hmm. A lot of things were transferable between there. Yeah. Where whereas I think that uh, had I been just focused purely on the business mm -hmm. things like that, then my area of uh, possible next steps would have been different. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Not necessarily better or worse, just definitely different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also work in the um, human resource team in Amazon before. It just uh, all the domain knowledge are completely different and you have to learn that. And then that's sometimes even more important than the tools, the models you use. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're certainly from my early days, my early career to now, my the amount that I care about what model mm -hmm. has greatly decreased. Right. I, I, I think that's so much less important yeah. than accurately modeling the problem. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Just actually representing the problem space correctly right. is so much more frequently a problem mm -hmm. than not knowing the right model to use. Yeah, exactly. Right? So how do you translate that business problem into a uh, data science problem. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and for people who are new to the industry, how do you think they can learn to ask better questions um, to translate this business problem to data science problem? I mean, I think it's the same way that you learn about being a better uh, engineer, or, mm -hmm. or if you're learning about how your tools work, is ask why. Mm -hmm. Like, try to understand all of the undergirding assumptions. Yeah. So if you're if you are kind of formulating a hypothesis, mm -hmm. you should deeply interrogate that hypothesis, mm -hmm. all of the logical steps that yeah. lead you to that hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And if you find something that's weak, mm -hmm. stop, investigate that point, yeah. dive deep on that. Mm -hmm. See if that supports the original assumption. Right. I think that's basically the strategy. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, don't let yourself be comfortable with uh, too many abstractions. Mm -hmm. Like take off the abstractions, go yeah. and explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. So what is something in your life that or in your career that you feel very excited about right now? I feel excited to be part of a journey uh, in an organization that's mm -hmm. like, I think, really beefing up our data science potential. Um, and like, not just in data science, but just becoming a, you know, becoming a, a, a group of professionals. Mm -hmm. And to and I also feel super excited about the growth that I've seen on my team mm. and like watching people push themselves and be successful. Yeah. Like to, I think that's maybe like a note to kind of like wind up on is like, it is deeply gratifying to provide somebody with, or I guess 
to try to work as a manager to create a context mm-hmm. where people can learn and can fail and to set up some loose success criteria mm-hmm. and then to watch people get really good yeah. is really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, right now, are you hiring data scientists? We are. We are. Although we <laughs> haven't yet mentioned uh, my place of employment because of uh, various concerns about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, PR and things like that. Sure. So um, I and unfortunately, I have to keep it that way for the duration of this interview yeah, just yeah. because uh, of calm stuff. Um, but. Yes, if uh, p- feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which I think I can share that information. Okay. So and then so in general, when you're hiring a data scientist, what is the most important quality you're looking for? Oh, I don't think there's any single quality. Mm. Um, I think it is. Um, I actually have a whole like essay that I would be happy wow. to share with you on on hiring process. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that a um, I think a one should be looking for a multitude of qualities or mm. like um i think bec- you know i think this domain is a very broad domain um and i think that uh to hire effectively yeah. uh, an interview process should be looking at uh competency across a broad set of skills mm. and i don't think there's any single skill that is dominant okay. i think that they're uh basically I think that there's the idea of the well-rounded candidate, mm-hmm. and then there's the idea of the spiky candidate. Right. The spiky candidate might be have be an amazing, amazing executor, just have incredible knowledge in one domain, mm-hmm. and have like you know, so-so like at the bar knowledge mm-hmm. um, in other names mm-hmm. or other domains. Um, whereas like the well-rounded candidate might have above like, you know, let's say good knowledge across many domains, but isn't sort of an expert in any. Yeah. So, but I do think it's important to keep in mind the breadth of that. Mm-hmm. And can you give some examples of, uh, you said you're looking at a few things. What are the say top three? Yeah. So I mean like the, uh, the ability to model a business problem, to mm-hmm. take a problem from concept concept down to some sort of driven solution, yeah. right? We could call that mm-hmm. like maybe the uh, domain expertise, mm-hmm. right? Um, the ability to actually um, put pen to paper, so to speak, but you know, actually um, produce lines of code that that result in a solution. Yeah. Um, I think that um, it's very very important to. Uh, for people to demonstrate that they can do more than just talk about a problem, mm-hmm. that they can actually actually work through a problem. Yeah. And there's many ways of doing that. Um, we don't need to dive too deep into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, probably that, I mean, then, then it becomes a matter of specialization. Is this person specializing as a... Uh, you know, as a data engineer, mm-hmm. uh, is this person specializing as like a, a you know a product analyst like role? Is this person specializing? Um, is this person sort of a general full stack data scientist? Is this one person doing machine learning engineering? There's all sorts of different sort of modules that one might add in to test spe- specific proficiencies, um, but the ability to kind of like manipulate data or or make judgments, you know, for example, a machine learning engineer probably needs to be able to execute very well uh, and make some decisions about models and what success criteria that they're using to evaluate model A versus model B and set up a test train split and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, whereas a data engineer might be much more concerned about the uh, cardinality uh, of this joining A versus joining B, um, thinking about how to model, uh, you know, if you have an event stream, how do you create like a, a you know, state of table at time T representation of that event stream? Like there's all sorts of different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it very much depends on the specialization. Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for sharing that. And uh, before we wrap up, do you have any like books and courses that you really like? You think you wish more data science would read and learn? Yeah, I'll give one more book recommendation, mm-hmm. and uh, this is I think one of my favorites, which is uh, by Andrew Gelman. Um, data analysis using regression mm-hmm. and multi-level hierarchical models. Yeah. Um, and, uh, do you, are there anything else you would like to talk to our audience? Um, any learnings or advice you would share for a data science career? I think we've mined it. We've got, we've gotten it all. We've yeah. solved all of the, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, so if people want to find you on the internet, do you have a blog, social media? How can um, people reach out to you? Let's see. I do have a Twitter account, um, which I can uh, share with you. I, I don't. I don't remember the name uh, right now, but um, you don't remember your Twitter accounts. I yeah. I think it's. <laughs> I don't remember. Okay. It actually. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll put yeah. it in the notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Or, or on LinkedIn. Yeah. On LinkedIn. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Brian. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah. It was really fun. And I think what we talk about will benefit a lot of people. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you.